In this show, we've got Peter Davis coming, and he's speaking on living through addiction. Um, but our contact with Patrick actually came through Alan and Jackie, so I've asked Alan just to introduce Patrick to us. Good Good morning. (laughs) We're short of sound engineers this morning, so I'm doubling up. Ah, Good morning. How are you all? It's fun, isn't it, how people come into your life? Um, 21st of March, 2017, on a Saturday morning in the tea room, we were just having lunch and this rowdy bunch came in with uh, Patrick, Mike, Andy Flanagan and the two girls just on their way back from uh, Winchcombe and they'd been doing a uh, part of the... uh, uh, the When Faith Gets Shaken tour. And um, that became uh, the start of a really, really good friendship. And then a couple of weeks later, um, Patrick phoned us up and he said, I'm doing a TV programme and would you like to come and be part of it? And by the way, would you like to write a little bit for our book as well? And uh, that was how we started, how we came to know Patrick. And um, people just come into your life. Now, Patrick is... How many people have heard Patrick speak at New Wine or Soul Survivor or um, New Wine Spring Harvest on the telly? Yeah, yeah. That's lovely. And he's now CEO and co-founder of Kintsugi Hope. And he'll tell you all about that in a bit. But he, he led Urban Youth Charity XLP for 20 years, 21 years. And he was also awarded an OBE from the Queen to the serve, for services to young people. Now, just as part of our Unashamed series, we just thought it'd be great for Patrick to come and share um, on burnout and depression because it's, it's things that affect each one of us. And uh, so I'd just like to welcome Patrick. If, I can come and, if you'd like to come along, I just want to pray for you, Patrick. He's also brought multi-purpose Mike with him as well. Mike is his left hand, right hand, middle hand, everything hand. <laughs> does really well. Let's just pray. Father God, we just thank you for Patrick and we just pray that today you will just give him the words to speak. We thank you for his ministry. We thank you for his obedience to you in doing everything that he does for so many people. And we pray that you will just refresh, renew him. Just give us words, just give him words that you want us to hear and give us ears to hear and hearts to receive as well. And we pray, Lord, that as Patrick speaks, you will speak to us. So we thank you for him in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks, mate. Good morning, everyone. It's brilliant to be here. Just turn to the person beside you and say, you're looking fantastic this morning. You're looking absolutely wonderful. Okay, that's enough encouragement. Um, It's brilliant to be here this morning. Um, We left incredibly early this morning. It was pitch black and it was chucking it down with rain. And and we come here and it's all nice and sunny. It's really um, obviously where God lives. It's fantastic. And uh, and it's been lovely. We've been getting to know this part of the world a little bit. We're just partnering with um, Bidford Baptist Church. It's not far from here. Um, Winchcombe, um, that we're partnering with a church there as well, so it's been really interesting just to get up to this part of the world a little bit more. Um, I'm going to explain a little bit about Kintsugi Hope towards the end, but just to say, if you'd love to pray for us, um, there's an opportunity to pray for us, and there's some book and some resources there as well. Um, some people often say to me um, afterwards, you use a lot of slides, and I can see all the iPhones coming out um, to take pictures of the slides. So what we did is we did this DVD which has all the slides on it and has some of the content from today on it. Also has Alan and Jackie's interview on TV on it as well. And uh, Or people say to me, I wish my husband was here. Um, and uh, so there's another great opportunity to take that home um, along with some of the other bits and pieces as well. And uh, unfortunately, um, epic fail. I forgot to bring the cash tin, but um, 
we can take card. So I don't know if anyone uses cash anymore. Um, but, um, but yeah, but I'm sure we can find some change from somewhere. Now, back in the day, um, being in the school hall reminds me is I used to do loads of assemblies. And I don't know if you remember your school assembly being the most riveting, exciting, dynamic moment of your school life. Anyone remember their school assembly like that? Um, there must be a few teachers here that love their school assembly. And, uh, but um, I had some kids who told me this story. Then they said, you know, they came into their school assembly hall. And on the stage was a table. And in the table there was a basket. And on the, in the basket there were these juicy gorgeous-looking apples. Above the basket of apples was a sign, and the sign said this, take one apple only, God is watching. (laughs) And so the kids came down the assembly hall, they took an apple, had a bit of a look around, um, sat down very nervously. As they left the assembly hall, there was another table, and on this table was this delicious-looking chocolate brownie. And, uh, and a kid had written a sign to put above that table. And the sign read this, Take as much brownie as you want, God's watching the apples. <laughs> and you know, so often we've communicated a God that's just mean. We've communicated a God that's just there to spoil your fun and is always going to not quite understand where you're at. But I don't know about you, I believe in a God that really understands some of the challenges and some of the pains that we go through. I often say to people, they don't, you know, God doesn't uh, promise to signpost us around the valley of the shadow of death. He says, I'm going to go through it with you. And uh, for me, life can feel a bit like a game of Tetris. Does anyone remember Tetris, the game? Um, these blocks fall out of the sky, and the idea is, is you need to get them in a straight line. If you get them in the straight line, the line disappears. But the challenge is, the blocks just keep coming. And you need to try and rotate them and and, uh, sort it all out. And I don't know about you, but why does things in life just always seem to go wrong at once? They just keep coming, and they get quicker and quicker and quicker, and suddenly you think, I just can't cope with everything. And it's game over. Put your hand up if you can relate to this next slide. Please, someone put your hand up if you can. Is it just me? Anyone relate to that slide there? It's like you've got your plan, you think you know what's going on, and suddenly life just doesn't work out that way, does it? And, uh, and the story that I wanted to look at today was the story of Elijah, because I think Elijah is one of those really fascinating characters where, you know, he, he grew up in this time where um, Israel was ruled by Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel was fascinated with the occult. She used to erect temples um, to the god Baal, Baal, I'm sure you know this, was um, in charge of the weather. And, of course, the, re- the way that people made their living in those days was agriculture. So you had to keep the god of Baal happy in order to keep the um, farming and all the other things going, which they were um, so reliant on. Um, but the way they worshipped Baal was disgusting. They used to whip themselves. They used to sacrifice children and uh, throw them into a firing, uh, a blazing furnace. But the Elijah story is a bit like a movie, because then you have Obadiah, 007. Uh, He's a secret agent in the temple, and he's smuggling away prophets of God in caves. And I reckon Elijah got to this stage, he didn't know about Obadiah, didn't know what God was doing, and crying out to God to do something. And then he came to that realization, like some of us have to come to sometimes, is that we are the answer to our own prayers. Um, That God is, for Elijah saying, God send someone, and God's saying, I'm sending you. And so there's this dramatic scene in 1 Kings 17 where Elijah goes into the temple and he confronts Ahab and Jezebel and he says, there'll be no more rain nor dew until I say so. It wasn't even until God says so, it was until I say so. Imagine the fear and the anxiety he must have gone through just to do that. And then he must have thought, come on God, let this be the moment. But God sends him to a place called the Cherith Ravine. Now, when I was at Sunday school, I used to colour in Elijah at the Cherith Ravine, and it was always sunny, and uh, he always had his top off sunbathing, and, uh, and these ravens used to drop meat once a day. It looked like they dropped Burger King on his lap. It looked like a really, you know, picturesque holiday scene. The reality was, it was a murky brook. Um, would have been pretty disgusting to drink the water. Um, he was giving raw meat 
every day for a year. So God provided in a dry place. There's no doubt God's provision was there. But he had no human company. And, uh, and the, the, the weather would have been about 120 degrees. Um, so it wouldn't have been the easiest place. So you can imagine his excitement when the, um, God says to him, I'm telling you to go somewhere else. He's like, great, where am I going? He goes, well, you're going to Zenopath. Zenopath was Jezebel Holmes' town. So that means it's just full of bar worshippers, and it's 80 miles away. So he treks over to Zenopath, and he gets there, and God says, see that woman who's collecting sticks? Um, she's suicidal. And uh, um, go and talk to her. And again, he must have thought, God, really? Could I have a little bit you know, an easier situation here? But you know the story. It's amazing. God's provision comes through. Uh, and then the woman's son dies. And, uh, and then it, apparently it's Elijah's fault that the woman's son died. And so Elijah lays on the body. The son comes back to life. And then the whole story seems to climax in a place called Carmel, where the prophets of Baal come and, uh, and uh, they, they say, set fire to this sacrifice and, uh, and uh, you know, called Baal to set fire to it. We know the story. He doesn't. And then God sets fire to the sacrifice. And the prophets of Baal are wiped out. Now, at that point, um, well, not all of them were wiped out, but a lot of them were killed. And at that point, um, Elijah must have thought, book tour, fantastic. You know, here I go. I'm going to be the main stage speaker. I'm going to tell the story about laying on the dead body a million times. You know, it's going to be fantastic. And, uh, but the reality was, is Jezebel put a death warrant out on his life. And Elijah lost it. He started to run. And isn't that so true of life, that life doesn't always work out the way we want it to? The plan wasn't there. You know, accidents do happen. People do get ill. Relationships do break down. Redundancies are made. Test results do come back with the most terrifying news. But then God and Elijah, he says this in 1 Kings 19, verse 1 to 5. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and that he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he was there, he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to Boombush, sat down under it, and prayed that he may die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Elijah is in a really depressed place, in a place where he's full of so much pain that he's starting to think the world would be better off if he wasn't there. Um, you know, I've been in that place myself a few times, and uh, I guess I grew up, um, uh, I ran a, a quite a large charity called XLP, and I was just an activist, you know, I want to change the world. And, uh, but I was that typical Christian worker, um, and it doesn't have to be a Christian worker, it could be anyone really, who you work really, really, really hard, because you're passionate about what you do, and then you burn out a bit, and you think, I really need to rest. So you rest for a couple of days, and then you work really, really, really hard again. And this sort of cycle goes on for years, really. It's a little bit what some of us do is we get our phone, don't we, and we charge it, and we charge it for 10 minutes, and it's got 10% charge. And, uh, and actually, 10% charge on your phone is as good as 100% charge in terms of what it can do. There's no difference between what your phone can do on 10% and 100%. It just doesn't last very long. And so many of our live our lives like that is that we're constantly um, looking at that place. But I guess my challenge was, is um, because I had quite a high-profile job, the showreel was always looking brilliant. My Facebook posts looked amazing, you know. And uh, we had a visit from the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge twice in a year. I hope you caught those names as they dropped there. And... Um, and it was amazing, you know, they came, this is um, Catherine sitting next to my wife, Diane, and they came and visited our young people, and they talked about it. And it's really rare for them to come to the same charity twice in a year and spend so many hours. They were with us nearly half a day. And, uh, and uh, there's this one photograph of me and Catherine on the steps of the church um, that we had as our office. And uh, what you can't see there is in front of us, is literally probably as many people as are here this morning, but the fact that every single one of you would have a camera and you're pointing at us and literally there are flashes going off. 
And me and Catherine, we were having this bizarre conversation on these steps. Um, the first part of the conversation was, um, William said, um, well, she said, um, do you like my dress? And I was like, yeah, it's a very nice dress, um, uh, princess. And uh, she went, hmm, Will told me I look like a tablecloth. <laughs> <laughs> not very nice for the future king of England. And, uh, but then I turned to her as we started to get talking about other bits and pieces. Is I said to her, I have no idea how you do this. This is intense. I would hate this. And, uh, but I went home that night and I was on the BBC News at 6 o'clock. Those photos were in OK Magazine, Go Magazine, the front pages of the papers the next day. Um, they were in magazines I'd never heard about in America. Um, and everyone started contacting me going, Patrick, wow, life's going good, hey? Doing a good job. The showreel looked great, but the reality is in that photograph, I really struggled with anxiety, and it was nothing to do with the royals. It was more to do around my health and my family, and, uh, and I'm just about to go into a dark time of depression, but, you know, as a Christian leader, I, I felt like I had no one to go to. I couldn't say anything because um, I felt embarrassed, I felt ashamed. And uh, so I started thinking about all the sermons that I'd heard on mental health um, over my life, and it didn't take a very long time to think about all the sermons that I'd heard. And when I had heard stuff, I'd heard stuff like, anxiety is not trusting God enough. Um, depression is a sin. And I was sort of told when I did uh, voice some of these things that I was struggling with that I didn't have enough faith. And in fact, in the last couple of years, the amount of Christians that come up to me who've been damaged by people telling them that they don't have enough faith is incredible. And to be honest, I started to get feel so broken and so fed up with the show, so fed up with pretending everything was okay, so fed up, um, just desperate for something more real, more authentic, more honest. And so I started to write this book called Honesty Over Silence. And, um, and there were times I thought, I think I'm going to have to stop writing this now because it is a little bit raw and, and I'll never get asked to speak anywhere ever again because everyone's going to think I'm backslidden. And, uh, but, you know, so I date, debated myself, do I do this or not? And then I read the Psalms. 40% of the Psalms are laments. They're David crying out to God. I don't get it. I don't understand it. And, you know, some of the most beautiful literature, art, poetry, music has been written when people are in that place going, I just want to be real and I just want to be honest. And, uh, and so I didn't want to just tell my story. So I asked some of my friends to tell their story. And, uh, and I didn't want to just go for the showreel stories, you know. Actually, I think it's more of a miracle sometimes when people go through tragedy and hang on to their faith. Um, I think that's a miracle. And they're miracle stories that don't often get told. And so the first one was Rachel uh, Wright. Um, she has a son who has a life-limiting condition. And he has to be turned every two hours. He has 20 injections a day. And, uh, and I said to Rach, um, how does it work faith-wise for you? And uh, she says, I struggle. You know, um, I struggle with the whole everything happens for a season. You know, that sort of stuff. Because the next season is my son dies. So I want to stay in this season as long as I possibly can. But then she said, you know what, without my faith, I couldn't do this. I just couldn't do this. My faith is the one thing that gets me out of bed every single morning. And then the next um, chapter was John Sutherland. Um, John is one of my best friends. Um, he was also a borough commander. He had 1,500 police officers that worked for him in London. And uh, I remember a number of years ago now, he was down A&E. And when one of your friends that is one of the most senior police officers in an area um, which he was working in is in A&E, you fear the worst, you know, stabbing, shooting. But he'd had a breakdown. Life had just got too much. The Tetris moment had caved in on him. And I used to go and visit him afterwards once a week. And, uh, and I remember him saying to me, "Is um, Patrick, um, the whole man up thing hasn't really worked for me, has it? And, uh, and I was like, no. And then, of course, Alan and Jackie told their story about their precious kid, Tom, who completed a suicide at the age of 16. And I remember saying to Alan and Jackie, are you sure you want to do this? Um, I always try to put people off um, doing stuff. And they're like, well, six and a half thousand Young people are taking their lives every single year. What, you're not talking about this stuff isn't doing anyone any good in the long run. 
In fact, Brené Brown says, you know, we are the most medicated, addicted, obese cohort in the whole of history. Not being honest isn't doing anyone any good. I was on the BBC doing a debate, and uh, we were talking about the rates of suicide, um, particularly amongst our young people. And the the, the person on the other end went, well, you know what? In this country, if 6,500 people were killed by bears, we'd do something about it. I was like, if four people in this country were killed by bears, we'd do something about it. (laughs) You know, um, but yet here is one of our biggest issues of our time, and we're not doing uh, anything about it. And so I was in this place of just searching, what can I do about this? What are the things that God is doing in my life? How can we communicate? How can we be more real? And I started to write, and, uh, and I got to the chapter on letting go of anxiety, and I started to panic a bit. And, uh, and as I was just, what do I write? And, uh, and I looked at all the other books around, you know, and they were all very technical, you know, fight or flight or freeze. Um, and I just felt that like, it, it lacked that human bit. So um, when I write, I write, I look at all the research from theologians. Um, I'm quite hot on that. All the research from psychologists, and I try and grapple with how do we make this relatable. And I just couldn't find anything. So I went to blog posts written by ordinary people, and I came up with this bit of a list, which I guess some of us can relate to. It says this. Anxiety is your brain not being able to turn off. It's the unanswered text message that kills us inside. Especially WhatsApp, right? Because you can tell people have read it. Just answer the text, please, everyone. It believes every negative scenario that you come up with. It's the inaccurate conclusions drawn as your mind takes off and you have no choice to follow its lead. It's apologizing for things that don't require you to say sorry. It's self-doubt and a lack of confidence. It's trying to fix something that isn't a problem. It's the fear of failure and striving for perfection, then beating yourself up when you don't get there. It's constantly, um, it tells you you're wrong, they don't like you. It's constantly asking the what if questions. I try to come up with a definition um, that I was happy with. And uh, because and I feel like sometimes with anxiety, the only thing we've offered people in the church is you need to trust God a bit more. As if that person has never thought of that. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, thank you so much. That is just revolutionary for me that I've got to try and trust God. You know, as if they've tr- not tried that, that, that they haven't spent, y- you know, year after year after year and suffered guilt because they don't feel like they're able to trust God. And, uh, and then I start to discover, actually, people with anxiety are actually some of the most caring, loving, sensitive people. They have empathy with people that other people that don't have anxiety don't have. And actually, that our strengths are also our weaknesses. And I, came out, I found this quote, and I thought it was beautiful. It says this, More than anything else, anxiety is caring. It's never wanting to hurt someone's feelings. It's never wanting to do something wrong. More than anything, it's the want and the need to be accepted and like. So you try too hard sometimes. You try too hard sometimes. It's like a car alarm going off all the time. It's so sensitive. And sometimes it's about how do we manage that process. I don't know if anyone can relate to this. Anxiety. Hopefully we'll have some anxiety soon. What if nobody likes me? What if I taste weird? What if I'm too cold? What if I'm too hot? What if I'm just right and I can never live up to it again? (laughs) The pearls of overthinking. Who does this? made a mistake, am I going to do the right job like this, I'm doing this wrong, everyone's staring at me, what do people think of me, why do I bother, why? The thing that really helped me was I read this book um, called Classic, um, Clinical Depression, The Curse of the Strong, it was a famous book on depression, and the psychiatrist that wrote it said, nine times out of ten, I can tell you the personal characteristics of someone that's suffering from depression, and they're these, moral strength, reliability, Diligence, strong conscience, a strong sense of responsibility, a tendency to focus on the needs of others before one's own, sensitivity, vulnerable to criticism, self-esteem dependent on the evaluation of others. Does that look like a weak person to you? People that struggled with this? Oliver Cromwell, Abraham Lincoln, Vincent van Gogh, um, Winston Churchill, Mother Teresa. I came to the conclusion that anxiety, panic, panic attacks, and depression are not signs of weakness. They're signs of remaining strong for too long. But that's what they are. You know, Elijah, 
came to this place of brokenness. He was really, really broken before God. And, uh, and one of the images that meant so much to me in my time of brokenness was this image of Kintsugi. I think it's beautiful. Is we take a pot and we break it. When we've got a broken pot, what do we tend to do? We tend to chuck it away, really. Or, if you're really good, you mend it with superglue. And the whole idea with superglue is it hides the cracks um, as if they're not there. And what they do in Japan, the word kintsugi means golden joinery. So they put a gold powder in the glue. So instead of hiding the cracks, they make a feature of the cracks. Arguably, the object becomes more beautiful than it was before. It certainly becomes more unique. And the reality is, is you'll never find a pot like that on planet Earth. You know what? You won't find someone like you on planet Earth. We need you to become more you because you are so special, made in the image of God. When I started Kintsugi Hope, um, I've got a friend, well, it's really my wife's friend, called Catherine. Um, She's an artist, and uh, an acoustic artist. And uh, she said, Patrick, I've made all these pendants for you. Um, They're bespoke. Every single one of them is handmade. Um, Takes her forever to make them. And, uh, And she said this, which I thought was beautiful. The scars of our lives are not to be hidden well, they make us who we are. And uh, she said, take them all wherever you go and sell them and make money for the charity. And, uh, and it's fascinating because actually when people are going through a hard time, it's really hard to know what to get them, isn't it? They don't really want a sympathy card. Um, they want someone to stand alongside them and be with them in, in, the, in their pain and in their anxiety. So there are three things I think that we can learn that are going to help us as we grapple with some of these things. And, uh, and the first one comes out of Elijah's, um, God's response to Elijah in 1 Kings 19. You see, what happens here is um, God speaks to Elijah and he doesn't say to Elijah, Elijah, cheer up a little bit. It ain't that bad. Look on the bright side. There are a lot of people worse off than you, you know. Remember the good old days, Xenopath. You know, once we got over the initial hurdle, the food was pretty good. It was all right. You know, and, you know, and I know the, the stream weren't all that, but you were safe. You know, come on, mate, cheer up a little bit. There's no pep talk. When people are in that really depressed place, you know what? Often they don't want to be rescued and they don't want to be fixed. They want to be loved. And there was a sense where the God said through um, the angels, sent the angels to Elijah and they cared for him tenderly. It's a really beautiful bit. And you know what they said to Elijah? You're exhausted. You need to sleep and you're hungry and you need to eat. There's this real sense of caring for him for the journey ahead. And I reckon Elijah must have been in that place that I often get, where you're completely beating yourself up thinking it's all your fault. You know, um, when I was um, uh, going through a really tough time, uh, I went and saw a counsellor, and she said, "Um, Patrick, I think you need to learn a bit about self-compassion. And I was like, don't be stupid, I'm an activist. And uh, self-compassion sounds a bit wussy to me. Um, I'm not going to go and sit and have a spa all day and do my nails or my hair, you know. I'd like, um, and, uh, and, you know, it felt like self-compassion was that extra glass of wine at the end of the night just to take the edge off, or that lovely piece of cake that Alan and Jackie probably got in their coffee shop, and just an extra portion of that would be really, like, self-compassion. Actually, the things that we think are self-compassionate make us feel more guilty in the long run, you know that. And I realized that self-compassion and self-indulgence are two very different things. Actually, self-compassion involves discipline. It might mean that I need to control the way I think about myself. It might mean I need to get to the gym. It might mean I need to pray a bit more. Self-compassion, though, is talking to yourself the way that you would talk to your best friend. So Mike, me and Mike have um, worked together for 25 years. Mike needs prayer for wisdom and discernment. And, uh, And if Mike came up to me and went, you know, Patrick, um, I'm struggling, mate. You know, challenging things at home, um, anxiety, I've got this going on, I've got that going on. I wouldn't go, come on, Mike, cheer up. You know, man up a little bit, come on. Things are pretty good. You've got great kids, great wife, you know, great place to live. Come on, mate, cheer up a little bit. You know, I wouldn't dream of talking to him that way. Um, I wouldn't dream of criticizing him going, actually, it's Mike, I think it might be your fault. You know, you are a bit of a loser, to be fair. Um, it's really unfortunate, you know, that you are so annoying um, and irritating. I wouldn't dream of saying that. Do you know who I say that to every single day? 
I wouldn't dream of treating someone else the way I treat myself. And we all do it, right? That inner critical voice is constantly putting yourself down. A good friend sent me this message on the day that I really needed to hear it. The plan is this. You do what you can when you can, whenever you can, with whatever you've got. And if you can't, you can't. You rest until you can again. You give yourself kindness so your pockets are full and you can reach in and pull out a fistful to offer the folks that you meet along the way. You see, self-compassion isn't taking the easy way out. It's giving us the, ourselves the kindness that we want to give to other people. The word compassion actually means to suffer with. It means to be conscious of another's pain and to have a desire to alleviate that pain. So self-compassion means doing that for yourself. But yet the inner critic is very, very loud. So we need to let go of the inner critic. Now, Elijah must have been thinking, my thoughts are all over this place. Now, the second key thing I always say that we need to respond, one is compassion. Second is get curious about your thoughts. Um, The very, very famous psychologist Carl Jung said, whatever you resist persists, which is a little bit annoying, really. So if you think about it, if I said to every single person in this room now, I don't want any of you to think about chocolate, dairy milk, flake, Mars bar, Twix, Easter eggs. Now, some of you are sitting there going, I'm not thinking about chocolate. I'm not doing it like that. And the fact that you're doing that actually probably says something, you know. And because uh, what, you, you know what it's like. The more you try not to think about something, the more you end up thinking about it. And so a friend of mine had this illustration, which I found really, really helpful. He said, if you imagine your thoughts as trains that are coming into a train station. And, uh, and he was saying, you know, what we do is we take this verse in Corinthians that talks about taking captive every thought. And we totally misunderstand it. We think so often that means as soon as a negative thought comes into your head, you're going to bash it in the name of Jesus. Um, and you know that that just makes, it, makes you feel guilty and makes you feel worse, right? And so what he was saying is what you do is you let the train come. In fact, you know, you could stand there on the platform in the underground and go, in the name of Jesus, train, do not come. It is going to come. And, uh, and sometimes actually it's really healthy going, oh, I recognize that thought. That's my, um, I'm going to die early of cancer train. Um, that's my, um, I'm really scared about my kids um, uh, train, you know. But he said, the key is this. This is where the taking captive bit go, comes in. You can choose whether you're going to get on that train or you're going to stand off and let it go. You can choose whether you're going to allow that to take you into that dark place. Because life happens. We can't always control what we think about. And so we, sometimes we have to question it. You know, I often say to people, use doubt. Doubt sometimes is a good thing. Doubt what you're thinking You know, if you don't remember anything else from today's talk, remember this. Don't believe everything you think. Struggling doesn't mean you failed. It means you're a human being. Who can relate to this image? Positive, 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 negative. It's true, I'm failure. I speak a lot in different churches, different places, and, you know, and, and, and churches are an interesting place to speak when you speak in so many different types Um, But what has a common thread sometimes for me is there's often this really loving Christian that comes up to me at the end and says, I just want to tell you something in love. When a Christian says, I want to tell you something in love, what you need to do is run. You just want, because you are about to get destroyed. And... um, and, you know, I'll go home and I'll be in my, you know, we'll get home late tonight and, uh, you know, I'll meet some amazing people. Some people have been really encouraging, so some really beautiful things. What's the one thing in bed that I'm going to be thinking about? It's the loving Christian. And then I'm going to start agreeing with her or him. Yeah, right. I'm useless. And suddenly it becomes a negative thing again and I start beating myself up. And so we have to get curious about what we're thinking about. We need to step away from the train and let it go. And the last thing um, I wanted to mention is, um, and one of the most important things for Elijah was that Elijah presumed he was on his own. In 1 Kings 19 verse 10, he says this, I have been zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. The reality was, you know what? There were 7,000 prophets left. 1 Kings 19 verse 18. Obadiah had been doing his job pretty good. They were hiding away. And you know, um, all research that's come out in the last year says the two biggest issues in the church today are mental health and loneliness. Interesting. And the two are obviously linked. 
you look at some of the stats around loneliness. You know, being acutely lonely is as stressful as being punched in the face by a stranger and massively increases your risk of depression. The effect of loneliness is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Three quarters of GPs see between one and five lonely people a day. That's incredible. We live in the most connected time of our history with our phones and our technology, and yet we're the loneliest we've ever been. So my story finishes off by um, the charity that I was running. I'd run for 21 years, and it got to 21, and you know it was doing really well. The royals had just visited, and I felt God say, um, it's time to let it go. And I was like, I'm a founder. We don't let go. And I talked to all my other founder friends, and they were like, why are you talking to us? We're still running our charities. We don't know how to do it. And, uh, and so it was really tough. It was a really tough time. And, uh, but God was like, I'm breaking your heart for something else. And, uh, and I was like, God, I would do anything for you apart from run a charity because I never want to fundraise ever again in my life. And, uh, and, uh, and so I really felt God say, don't think charity, think movement. And think, what's the dream? You know, Jim Wallace often says, Martin Luther King stood up and he said, I've got a dream. He didn't stand up and went, I've got a five-year business plan I'd like you all to read. Or, I've got a complaint to make. He said, I've got a dream. Justice and equality. Let's rally around the dream. And uh, they say that vision is the art of seeing the invisible that produces passion and energy. So our dream was we wanted to see a world where mental and emotional health is understood and accepted with safe and supportive communities for everyone to grow and flourish. And you know, they're not a load of clever words that we've just chucked up on the screen. Because if you feel understood and accepted, and you feel safe and you feel supported, guess what's going to happen? You're going to grow and you're going to flourish. And we'd love to see a world. But I didn't want to start a charity. So I started to study movements. So I looked at movements around the country. I spent a while doing this. I looked at Parkrun. Anyone ever done Parkrun here? Put your hand up. Parkrun, literally today, hundreds of thousands of people running parks across this country. Um, Different ages, different cultures, different abilities. Um, There's something about belonging but not having to fit in. And uh, Parkrun just is amazing. Um, I looked at Rock Choir. Rock Choir, um, again, anyone done Rock Choir? There's a few people. Oh, brilliant. And uh, Rock Choir literally happens in communities. It's, it's, you know, it's what it, it says. It, it's, a, it's a choir um, that does rock music. And then basically what they do is they hire Wem- Wembley Arena. They've hired Wembley Arena and literally pack the place out. It's incredible. Different cultures, different ages, different abilities coming together. We looked at Weight Watchers. Anyone done? No, no, let's not do that one. <laughs> Bad. And uh, I joined Weight Watchers. And I was fascinated. On the first week, I was doing my little group thing, you know. And the woman was like, we don't really talk about food much. We talk about all or nothing thinking and perfectionism and gratitude. I thought, I could be in a seminar here at New Wine. This is crazy. What is going on? And we looked at Alcoholics Anonymous and just the way that 12-week program, the reason it's 12 weeks is because all the research says after 12 weeks, relationships change because you've invested a part of yourself. And so what we did is uh, me and my wife, we wrote a 12-week program similar to the AA. Um, but instead of writing it on alcohol, we wrote it on well-being. And we looked at all the things around well-being, um, all the things we can relate to, anger, forgiveness, self-acceptance, anxiety, honesty, um, resilience. And then we were like, well, how are we going to get this across the world? Or even the UK would be a good start. And uh, we were like, you know what? Every church that we work with has small groups. So why don't we say to our small group, why don't you run this for 12 weeks? And, uh, and I wasn't the home group leader, but I said, you know, we've been doing he- Hebrews now for quite a few years. Do you reckon we could um, have a change and do this? And, uh, and they were like, oh, I don't know, you know. Um, and I said, but I'll tell you the thing is, let's not just do it for us. Let's invite some of the people from our community in. And so it was fascinating. So we started at the school gate where our kids go to school. I've got four children. And uh, went up to some of the mums and uh, some of the dads and were like, um, next week we're starting a Kintsugi Hope wellbeing group. Would you like to come? And they were like, what on earth are you talking about? And then I'd go, well, Kintsugi, it's Japanese and it's broken. And they'd be like, oh, the gold thing, right? I'd be like, yeah, the gold thing. And then what was fascinating for me, they'd go, yeah, I'll come. I feel pretty broken. My husband's just left. I'm in debt up to my elbows. I haven't told anyone yet. Yeah, I'll come. 
um, woman in corner shop, you know, really struggling, self-harm. Um, we've got people who, um, uh, my neighbor, really struggling with some of the stuff that's been going on in a relationship that her husband left about a year ago. And suddenly, our life group trebled in size. So I'm sitting there on the first week feeling fairly anxious, thinking, who are all these people in my home? And, uh, and my wife is running the group. So I'm basically um, just a punter, you know, and the first week's on honesty. So she says, turn to the person beside you and tell them about a high point in your life and a low point in your life. It doesn't have to be the highest point or the lowest point. It can just be a high point and a low point. So I turn to the guy next to me who's called John, and I've known John on and off my whole life. He's about 20 years older than me. We've been connected to the same church for 45 years. And uh, so I thought, oh, great, this will be easy. And I turned to him, and I learned more in five minutes than I'd learned in 45 years in church doing this. By the time he'd finished, I went, mate, I'm so sorry that somehow we created a culture where actually I had no idea what you were going through. And uh, me and him are tight right now. And we're about 28 years different in age, but we have something in common because we started to be real and honest with each other. And so when I was speaking at Spring Harvest, I just said to a load of people, I went, who wants to run a pilot? Let's just do it for a year. Let's just see if this thing's going to work. And what blessed my heart so much about the church was the church were thinking, you know, we can run it in small groups. We have small groups, but we have this outreach to the homeless and we never do content with the homeless. We make them food and, uh, and stuff, which is all great stuff. But this would work brilliantly with the homeless. And so they started doing it amongst the homeless. We had five homeless guys come every single week. None of them were Christians. And uh, my wife wrote the course in learning styles, and we used prayer as a learning style, which is quite clever, right? And uh, we did this journal where people can journal around the 12 weeks. They can write poems and poetry and psalms to God and prayers to God and, and all those sort of things. And, uh, and we went through the 12 weeks. Um, we had other people come up to us going, um, one in five ladies suffer from postnatal depression. We don't really talk about it in church. We could run this group for the ladies in our church that are going through this. There's a church in Ipswich, a Baptist church in Ipswich, that has said, you know, we've got loads of parents in our church whose kids have just gone astray. They've just, um, you know, there's been an incident or they're addicted or they're just astray from God. And this would be perfect. Um, we were in Exeter and, uh, and I guess because a lot of my talks are quite visual, this woman came up to us from the deaf community. And she went, you know, in the deaf community, we have so many mental health challenges, but a lot of churches think, get a signer and they've done their job. Actually, it's really lonely and isolating. Um, could we develop this material for the deaf community? And to cut a really long story short, is we've just seen this like sort of flow around the country. Um, not because we have a great marketing budget, because we don't. In fact, we've got about 500 quid for the year. But through word of mouth and relationship, and people going, I get it, I understand. And, you know, I've been praying like mad for a new move of God's spirit. I don't know about you, but I have to be really honest with you. I said to God, you know what, if the next big move of your spirit is going to be in some warehouse in America somewhere, and there's going to be a really famous band who are normally session musicians on the way, and a really larger life personality, and God TV are going to come, and we're going to beam it all around the world, and we're going to call it revival, I quit. But you know what? If it could be in small groups, in coffee shops and in the Royal Legion, and in hospitals, and in prisons, and in schools, and in brothels, if it could not be led by the incredibly famous, but by the fragile and the vulnerable and the courageous, I'm up for it. I'm up for it. And that's, it feels like what we're starting to see the first signs of. I love to quote the famous theologian Winnie the Pooh. He says this, don't walk behind me, I may not lead. Don't walk in front of me, I may not follow. Just walk beside me and be my friend. Because the reality is, isn't it, is people start to heal the moment they feel heard. That's when they start to heal. Um, my PA um, is called Ludovine. Um, she's from France. And uh, our Kintsugi Hope group, um, we have a WhatsApp group. We always WhatsApp in each other, inspirational quotes. They, they quite like it, you know. And, uh, and so she um, put this quote round, and the quote was this. It was flawsome. Flawsome means an individual who embraces their flaws and knows they're awesome regardless. I said to Ludovine, Ludovine, um, in England, we don't make up words. Um, in France, you might just make up words and think that's really cool. In England, we don't tend to do that. We tend to stick to the dictionary. 
and, uh, and she was like, look it up. So I went to my phone, Google, looked it up in the dictionary, and there it is in the dictionary. An individual who embraces their flaws and knows they're awesome regardless. How cool is that? You're flawsome. You're absolutely flawsome. And one of the things that we do, me and Mike and Di and my wife, we do this tour around the UK. We're doing a tour in uh, November this year and March next year. And we finish by uh, getting everyone to come forward. Because um, you know what it's like. If you suffer from a mental health challenge, I've been in so many of those meetings where the guy on the platform goes, if you suffer from anxiety, come to the front and we'll pray for you. <laughs> and you're like, you're having a laugh. <laughs> it's like the last thing you want to do, isn't it? And uh, so we were like, how do we get everyone involved? And so what we do is we give everyone this card and we just say, you know, every single one of you has a different fingerprint. Even identical twins have a different fingerprint. Why don't you come, put your hand, uh, finger on this card, keep it. And, uh, and then if you want to, there's this cross at the front and you can put your fingerprint on the cross. And by doing that, you're saying, I was worth dying for. It's a moment. All the Christians, um, to be honest, um, all the non-Christians have no problem with this. Some of the Anglicans, who are many of my friends, are like, am I allowed to touch the cross? I'm not sure I'm allowed to do this. Um, but in the end, when they see the vicar do it, they think, okay, I'm allowed, that's good. And, uh, but it's a moment, because you were worth dying for. And I don't know where you're at today. I'm guessing, because we're human beings, that some of you are feeling broken, and some of you are feeling that you're in this place. Um, and I'm just, just going to show this. This is 90 seconds of me and my mate Hannah trying to do Kintsugi. Check this out. My youngest son, Nathaniel, was at a friend's house. There was a confrontation with a boy that turned up and decided that he'd take a knife and stab Nathaniel with it. I feel like at that time I was in a bubble and feeling alone and not even knowing how to articulate that to anyone. I had to have major limb reconstruction surgery. Around the same time, my daughter got a condition called HSP and my dad got cancer. It was like a perfect storm of things going wrong. And I realised that the anxiety was really taking root in my life. And then you realise that actually you can't just carry on. And you need to show some self-compassion. Bereavement is different for everyone. What's really important is that people are able to talk to someone that they can connect with. And through that, there's a real good healing process. And actually maybe receiving help is letting go of your pride and saying, I am really broken. And as we share in our brokenness, we share in our common humanity. The brokenness is my heart and it's in pieces. But through time, it's starting to come together again. Discovering treasure in life's scars. Um, self-compassion, self-indulgence, two very different things. Get curious about your thoughts and thirdly, realise that you are never ever on your own. I'm going to finish by reading this poem. Um, I seem to be really popular with lovely old ladies. I don't know why. Um, they seem to love me. I love them. And, uh, and this lady, um, Jane, um, I spoke at a church actually a couple of weeks ago. Me and Mike were there. And, uh, and she's been following me around. And, uh, um, but she um, writes poems. And, but she's got a very rare form of blood cancer. And so she can't get out very often. And the other day, she managed to get to hear me speak, and uh, managed to get her some cushions and uh, get her comfortable and stuff. And uh, when she knew the sort of things that I was preaching and speaking about, she was like, I've written you a poem. Um, we put it in our manual, and it's a beautiful poem, and it says this, and then we're going to pray. Um, Acceptance in the anguish, beauty in the bruises, belief in the brokenness, breakthrough in the battle, comfort in the conflict, contentment in the confusion, Courage in the crisis, determination in the distress, diamonds in the dust, dignity in the disappointment, direction in the difficulty, discovery in the darkness, fear, faith in the fear, fortitude in the frustration, grace in the grief, healing in the horror, hope in the hurt, insight in the injury, inspiration in the illness. God never leaves us alone. If you're able, won't you stand with me and uh, I'm going to pray and then hand back to your pastor. Thank you.
let's just take a minute, shall we, um, just to um, hear what God is saying. Father God, thank you so much for your presence in this place. And God, I want to thank you for all the precious people here who are totally flawsome. And Lord, I want to pray, Lord, where life doesn't quite work out the way we thought it was going to, Lord, that we would know your presence near us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you just increase your presence in this room. We thank you that you're here already, but we just pray that you'd increase your presence in this room, Lord God. Father God, I just want to pray, if you are, and I guess there'll be a few of us, if you're one of those people that tend to beat yourself up quite a lot, that the inner critic is quite loud in your head, um, could you just put your hand up so I can just see? If you're one of those people, the inner critic, you keep constantly criticise yourself, and it's more than occasional, just put your hand high, just put your hand really high. Just keep your hand up, I'm going to pray. Now, can I just tell you guys something? I don't want to embarrass you, but you, there's, I'd say that's 50% of us, right? 50% of us in this room. You are not strange. You are not weird. You are not on your own. And if I had time, I'd pray for every single one of you because you're very, very precious. I do believe that God wants you to shift what you think about yourself. So Holy Spirit, I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, for people that are constantly beating themselves up, are constantly highly critical of themselves. God, I pray that they would just hear that voice that Elijah heard in that cave in a really tender and an unhyped, beautiful way this morning, saying that you are loved. You are loved. You are cared for. You are flawsome. You're made in the image of God. You are beautiful. And Lord, some of the things that sometimes we think disqualify us actually qualify us. So God, we pray you'd come. You'd come. You'd come in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.